Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. Today's interview is with Joe DeSena, the founder and CEO of The Spartan Race. This is one of my favorite interviews from early back in the Fitness and Post podcast days. I'm re-releasing it because it is so old that it no longer shows up in any podcast feeds. In this episode, Joe and I reminisce about Joe's background starting many different businesses, some as early as high school working for the mob, as well as designing women's clothing of all things, why and how he started the Spartan Race, but most importantly, we discuss grit, determination, and perseverance, and how pushing yourself outside your comfort zone can help you develop something that he has coined obstacle immunity, which can be applied to many areas of your life far beyond physical conditioning and athletic competition. As Joe says, if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. And now, without further ado, my interview with Spartan Race founder, Joe DeSena. All right, let's do it. Well, first of all, I just wanted to make sure and thank you very, very much for doing this. This has been a goal of mine for a long time to, to get on the show with you. Um, wow. So this this really means a lot. But like you say, you got to start telling people what you want to do and then you just make it happen. So it is amazing, right? When yeah. I was just thinking about it this morning. I, well, I do it to myself. I, I've gotten to the point where I don't necessarily have to tell other people. I just got to just got to say it in my mind. Right. Yeah. And you're and you're committed. Exactly. Yeah. That, and that's exactly the way that I've done it, where, you know, for years now, I've had all of these goals and aspirations for either the documentary film that I'm making or for this program now. And I just start telling people this is what's going to happen. It's not, well, I'm kind of trying to do this and maybe someday it'll happen. It's like, nope, this is what's going to happen. I don't know when. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't even know what the steps are, but I just know this is where it's going to end up. And people just kind of look at you funny and they're like, okay, well, you mean business, you know? So that's, that's kind of the, the story of my whole life and why I'm recording a podcast at 4 a.m. on a Monday. I think I'm honored to be on the podcast. I, um, I've had some really weird stuff going on in my life with some folks. I've been questioning humanity the last few days <laughs> and wondering am I the only person that operates this way? So I'm glad to hear there's two of us. Yeah, no, I'm not quite sure that I'm at your level. Like I, I don't eat rocks for dinner and I don't feed rocks to my children for dinner. So I'm not quite there, but we're, we're definitely cut from the same cloth. I just might not be cut from steel cloth. That's funny. That's funny. Listen, I even slip and have a Haagen-Dazs vanilla ice cream every once in a while. So, well, you kind of have to, you know, like part of it is that you just have to indulge every once in a while. But the other part of it is that you don't appreciate all of the work that you've done with your health until you slip and realize how absolutely awful you feel afterwards. That's right. You know, that's kind of a badge of courage for me is that if I do slip and I'm literally like on the toilet for a day or I can't even function, I'm like, this means I'm doing something right because one pizza has just knocked me on my ass. I said, I just had that conversation yesterday with somebody. So I agree. 
the idea that the reason that I really wanted to have you on the show today is not to talk about the Spartan race specifically, because anybody that goes back into my past episodes, they can learn all about the different types of races, the types of obstacles. They can hear my stories about going under barbed wire and crawling up ropes and doing all this other crazy stuff. So I'm not here today to talk about the what, the when, the where, or the how of the Spartan race. Today is all about the why. I want to understand the theory behind the Spartan race, where it came from, who is this person that created it? Because in the world of endurance racing, you're kind of a deity. I mean, you're literally like a legend in the world of endurance racing and obstacle racing. But in my world of post-production and filmmaking and TV production, nobody really knows who you are. And people are kind of starting to hear about the Spartan race, mostly because I won't shut up about it. But I really am trying to crossbreed these two worlds and help people understand that just because you're in front of a computer all day doesn't mean that you can't still be healthy and be active and do things like this. So I want to go all the way back to the beginning of your days being a pool boy for the mob and take that all the way to your move to Pittsfield, Vermont, and just understanding what the journey was that kind of forged you to the person that you are. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, I'm a legend, but I'm a legend in my own mind. I'm not, I'm not much of a legend. Way back when parents get divorced, I don't know, nine or 10 years old, but I, I think back a lot of, about that childhood now because I have children. And so you try to figure out how do you get the good qualities out of yourself to them and, and, and not the bad qualities. And so then you think about your environment and the place you grew up and can you, do you have to recreate that to give them the good stuff? And for better or worse, I grew up in this crazy neighborhood in Queens, for whatever reason, 90% of organized crime found themselves living in this neighborhood. And uh, it was a lot bigger than it is now. Most of those guys are dead or in jail. And my dad was doing very well, um, but I still had a spark to go earn and make money. So at a very young age, I started selling fireworks. I had this ambition. I would ride around on my bicycle and buy a pack of firecrackers for 10 cents and sell it for 13 cents. And I started to understand margins and supply and demand before I was 10 years old. And around, I don't know, 12 years old, my dad started to go broke because um, he lost a big contract he had at Kennedy Airport and he'd over leveraged himself. And I quickly found myself looking for some work. And my neighbor was the head of, of one of the families. And he took me in and he said, look, why don't you clean my pool, pay you $35 a week? I didn't know what I was doing. But he looked out for me. He only had daughters. And, and I was like, I guess his son. And so before you know it, he gave me you know, a few more customers and a few more guys. And uh, they were amazing customers because um, they taught me so much. I, I not only cleaned the pool. This is going to sound silly, but there's a metaphor here that people can apply to life. I not only cleaned the pool, which was what they were paying me for, but I straightened up the lawn furniture. I took care of that. I straightened up the shed. These are things I weren't, I was not getting paid for, but they would make comments and, and kind of teach me like, Hey kid, if I'm going to let you in the backyard, you know, take care of all these things. And I quickly learned that, um, I became invaluable by taking one extra step. And, and before you know it, I was acquiring all these customers that 30 and 40 year old businesses were losing. And I'm scratching my head saying, is it, is it that simple? Is it just because I'm taking one extra step, five extra minutes that I'm getting all these customers? I ultimately, um, my parents got divorced. My mother moved me to Ithaca, New York, five hours away. So I used to travel back and forth to continue to run that business and spend the summers with my dad running that business and go back to Ithaca High School. So, so the lesson there was where I take the extra step. So, so now I'm in Ithaca and I'm graduating high school and, um, I'm thinking I'm not going to college. Like I've got a, a booming business. I'm, I've got access to 750 customers, mostly organized. I could walk in anybody's house, open the refrigerator, sleep on the couch. Like I'm that trusted. And so I'm not, I'm not going to school. I'm, I'm done with high school. And a kid comes up to me uh, just before graduation, a, a month or so before. And he says, Hey, do you want to go to Cornell, which is located in Ithaca? And I said, uh, not really. I'm, I'm, I've got this business. And he said, well, my dad's a professor. I think he can get us in. And we, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. I might as well, before I pack it in and go to Queens and don't get a degree, let me just, let me just check this thing out. Cornell. I wasn't very, a great student and, and, you know, I had my business and that's what I was focused on. So anyway, we apply and neither of us get accepted. And, um, 
he says to me, you know, my dad said we can go extramural. We could take up to three classes, uh, non-matriculated, which means we won't be officially part of the school. But should we ever become officially part of any school, we can then transfer those credits. And if we do really well, there's no reason why we couldn't reapply and they would let us in. Apparently, pretty much any college allows this, but, but it's an untold little secret. So the regular students, the kids that got accepted were taking five classes. We would take three. My problem was I didn't know how to study. I, I didn't have good grades. So I said to my friend, look, I'm going to go back and run my business this summer. I'm going to sign up for a couple of classes at St. John's University. I'm going to learn how to study before I go to Cornell and attempt to do very well and reapply. He said to me, well, I'm going to go to Vegas. I want to party all summer because if we're going to buckle down in September, I want to get all the partying out of me. And so we went in two different directions. And that was another giant lesson in my life, right? I, I delayed gratification. I said, let me put the work in early. Let me take that extra step. There'll be plenty of partying later. I don't need to party now. So I took two classes at St. John's. I learned a ton. I did very well. I got my pool business done for the season, went back to Cornell, crushed it. We both went to school and um, I reapplied with great grades. He didn't have such great grades and uh, neither of us got accepted again. So anybody that knows the cookie test or the marshmallow test would say, well, there you go, Joe, you delayed gratification. You went to school that summer. He went and partied, but yet you didn't get the second cookie. Well, so I did it again. He decided to go to UNLV. He went to Vegas for good. I stayed and I said, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick this out. And I did a second semester and a, applied again and they denied me. And so I uh, went back that second summer, ran my, my business, came back and tried a third semester. At this point, I am 18 credits, uh, 15 or 18 credits behind, right? Because I've only been able to take nine credits a semester. Everybody else is taking 15. So um, I'm getting a little antsy. I'm kind of losing um, my patience and, and starting to think that the marshmallow or the cookie is not going to come by waiting and, and working hard. Anyway, I'm into my fourth semester now, and uh, I decide I'm, I'm broken. They got me. I'm just going to go run my business. I don't need to go to school. If I do go to school, maybe I can get into NYU or something in New York. My mother, who was a yoga teacher, meditation freak, into vegan foods, way ahead of her time in the 70s, who I would never have guessed had any connections. My dad would have had the quote unquote connections, says to me, um, I teach yoga to a woman at Cornell. Before you pack it in, let me just see if maybe she'll meet with you. So I sit down with this woman. And her name is Anita Racine, Professor Racine, who I still stay in touch with now. And I tell her my story. And she says, do you like textiles? Do you like clothing? And I said, well, you know, I also on the side, I sell some t-shirts and things along with my business. Uh, she goes, I have 90 women in this department that's studying textiles and only one man. And I said, you know, I love textiles. <laughs> I said, I'd love to be part of that program. So um, ultimately, she accepted me, went to Cornell, kept running the business, paid for my college completely. So I had no debt when I came out. And then there are a bunch of other things that occurred that have just changed my life along the way, all, all from, from those little lessons I just described. My favorite part of that story is that Joe DeSena, the guy that runs the Spartan race and has run all these endurance races, didn't get a degree in exercise physiology or kinesiology or a degree in eating nails. He gets this degree in making clothing, which I think is so fantastic because that just means that you saw a goal and you removed your ego. And I would imagine that as a boy that grew up in Queens, New York, you probably had a couple of tough conversations with your buddies saying, oh yeah, I'm going to Cornell University making clothes, right? I I mean, I couldn't tell people, right? Because um, here I was studying women's fashion over the last hundred years and hemlines and design. And uh, But I tell you what, if I had to do it all over again, I would because it was an amazing degree. During, during that period of time, if you remember in the, in the late 80s, that was the first industry to go overseas. So the big discussion were, was quotas and, and offshore labor and all the things that ultimately the rest of the country fell, fell into, which, you know, everything ultimately moved overseas. So it really was a business degree, but it gave me the added bonus of watching an old movie today and telling you exactly when the, that movie took place, because I, I know women's hemlines um, really well. <laughs> And it, because of that, you have some really, really good gear. I mean, all these different obstacle course racing companies have their own line of gear now. But, you know, your gear is top, top notch. And obviously now everybody knows why. It's because you learned how to make dresses in college. So 
it's going to sound like a plug, but the sweatshirt we make called the Ultra Hoodie mm-hmm. is actually a sweatshirt I started to design at Cornell in 1988. It is whatever, 25 years in the making. Yeah. Now, is that the one that's the zip up? It's not the zip up. It, it's a pullover. It weighs, I don't know, five or six pounds. You could use it if you were going to war. This sweatshirt right. is, it sounds like I'm plugging it. I'm, feel free to buy it and return it. I'm, you've never felt a sweatshirt like it. Hmm, well, I'm going to have to try that one because I pretty much live in my zip up um, hoodie. I mean, I just wear that to work every day. And literally, people kind of don't recognize me when I'm not wearing it. So I love that thing. What I'd like to do now is transition from a guy that went to college at Cornell learning how to make dresses to the guy that completed the Badwater Ultra Marathon, the Lake Placid Ironman, and the 100-mile trail run in Vermont. And he did it in one week for a grand total of about 380 miles of endurance racing. So how in the world does that happen? You know, this is going to sound silly, but um, that wasn't even as hard at all as running a business in Queens and going to Cornell at the same time, right? Like you look at those things and you say, wow, how, how did you do that? We ran the, the, the Vermont 100, jumped on a plane, shot out to Vegas, uh, ran across um, Death Valley, 135 miles in, in, in 135 degree heat, my shirt melted and then, and then wrapped it up with an Ironman. And it sounds amazing and it was extremely hard. But when you're running a business with 700 customers and trying to go to college and 18 credits, like, I don't know, it's, uh, there's nothing like running a bit, you know, you're running a business. I'm running, I'm actually running two businesses and working 60 hours a week at a full-time job. So I definitely understand this analogy. People want to talk to me about Badwater and these races. And I think it's kind of a vacation. It sounds silly. I'm not, I'm not bragging or anything. I'm just, when you're running a business, you don't get any, um, you don't get to breathe and feel alive and zone out. Right? You're constantly under attack. When you go to do an Ironman, your mind gets to drift. You get to relax. Yeah, you're breathing hard, but like you don't have to make payroll at the end of the race. Yeah, I can relate to all of that. And that's that's kind of part of the, the philosophy of why I do the Spartan races and why I got into obstacle course racing. And as you, I'm sure, get every day, people kind of think I'm nuts when I talk about it. But there was a day a couple of months ago, it's actually the day that you and I met in person, where I had woken up at five or six in the morning and I went to one of the Spartan races. And then as soon as I was done, I went home, took a shower and then went to work on a Sunday. And I edited for 14 hours until one in the morning. And the easiest part of my day was the Spartan race. You know, like that's the whole idea behind why I do these. So I really want to segue then into why it is that you design the Spartan race and then talking about frame of reference and obstacle immunity, because this isn't about getting dirty and saying, oh, I crawled under barbed wire. There's so much more to it. And that's why I'm so passionate about sharing it with people. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a tilt 
problem at. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height-adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it, right? So so if you, now that I describe my history and, and you describe what you do every day, you get it, obviously. And you get it because um, it's so hard just to get through a regular life when you're trying to be productive. And so the idea with the race was when I started doing these, I'll finish the story. I graduated Cornell and, and then I'll be able to answer your question. I graduated Cornell. I met a guy at Cornell who stayed in touch with me while I was in Queens building the business. He begged me to go to Wall Street. I thought it was ridiculous. He eventually convinced me four years out of Cornell to take a job on Wall Street. I did. I ended up building my own business on Wall Street and I did knock on wood very well. To calm myself down during those Wall Street days, I did over a decade on Wall Street where I sat at a desk and just typed. Like when you edit, I needed a way to feel alive like I did when I was physically running that pool and construction company. I I was able to get a release because I was sweating every day. Couldn't get a release on the trading desk just like you probably don't get at editing. I stumbled upon long distance ultra endurance events like the Badwater, the Ironman, Eco Challenge. I have a very... um, exciting personality. So I would excite people into doing some of these events with me. And everybody I touched, just like when my mother would do it with yoga or meditation or vegan foods, got excited about it and started to come do these races with me and started eating healthy and doing Bikram yoga. And I would touch these lives and people would transform. And I scratched my head and think, is it that unique? They never heard of yoga before. They didn't know how to eat. And then I realized I had a huge advantage. My mother was this guiding light with all this stuff. And not everybody had a mom like that. So when I ultimately um, left Wall Street and landed in Vermont, I found myself in a situation where I had more time on my hands and could actually um, get in the race business and, and do it in a formal basis and convert people by the hundreds or thousands or even now millions. And in doing so, I could not only get people healthy, but I could start putting them up against these obstacles in life, barbed wire, fire, obstacles at the races, barbed wire, firewalls, et cetera, which would be metaphors for life. So like if you can get through the race, just like when I did an Ironman, you might not complain when somebody is uh, telling you that they don't like the person you're sitting next to in the office or they should have got a bigger bonus or all the things that ruin your day become less significant because it hurts under barbed wire. (laughs) It sucks when you're hanging on a wall and you can't get over it. And you start to put everything in perspective and say, come on, is it really that bad? You make a lot of money. Who cares the person next to you makes a little more? Who cares the coffee wasn't the perfect temperature, the car didn't start, et cetera. So it became this great tool to teach people the term you describe, which is a proper frame of reference, right? Like yesterday I was breathing heavy, racing with this woman up a mountain and we were talking about something. And I said, well, I got both my legs and both my arms. There are people out there without legs and arms, so I can't really complain. And it just puts everything in perspective. So I hope that answered the question. Yeah, I know that that absolutely answers it. And I've definitely beaten this horse to death over and over on several of my podcasts before just about this idea of frame of reference. And um, I actually use this on my kids all the time. And I think I drive my son crazy because he's five years old. He's still, you know, little tiny kid. And he'll just kind of whine and complain about something. And I remember specifically a couple of days ago, um, we were walking up the steps and it was like after a basketball game or something. He's like, oh, oh God, I'm just so tired. And I'm like, well, at least your legs work and you're able to walk up the steps. So there's always that, right? Because maybe your legs don't work and maybe you can't get up the steps. So that's something that I'm already trying to help my children understand that it's you really have to try and focus on what you have versus what you think you don't have or things that you want. You're literally rewiring your brain. And really a good example of that for my audience and for my industry is that I'm on a super high profile, i.e. high stress job, 
on network television show. And the stress is just immense and the deadlines are crazy and people are running around like chickens with their head cut off. And there was a time I remember two or three weeks ago where we were just kind of at the height of insanity. And the person that runs our department is just like, oh my God, I cannot deal with this anymore. I'm going to go nuts. My head's going to explode. And somebody had said, you know, like we had a conversation, like, are you going to come back for season two? Because we've been renewed for a second season. And I was like, well, yeah, of course. They're like, what? Are you crazy? I'm like, this is fun, guys. Like, I love my job. I love what I do. Yeah, it's stressful, but it's not hard. And they're looking at me like, are you nuts? And I'm like, dude, this is easy compared to running, you know, a half marathon in the mountains with 4,000 foot elevation gain and, you know, like hours and hours in the heat. Like, this is nothing. Not only that, um, it occurred to me a few days ago, that person that you just described might not be equipped because maybe they're not eating healthy and not exercising, right? Maybe they're smoking cigarettes or drinking a little too much alcohol and their body and mind is just not equipped to deal with the stress the same as yours, mm-hmm. right? I, and the other, the other great frame of reference point, have you seen the movie, The Good Lie? No, I haven't. You must see it. It's with Reese Witherspoon. It's a Ron Howard film. And I caught it on an airplane coming back from China uh, a week ago. It caught me completely off guard. So basically in Sudan, back in the late 80s, early 90s, there was this North-South war that rendered 100 children orphans. And in the movie anyway, the the children are all, you know, five, six, eight, 10 years old, and they find themselves without parents instantly from these different villages. And they start to walk without shoes because they don't have shoes. Uh, And they walk some more and they walk some more. And they don't have camelbacks. They don't have backpacks. There's no water stations. These kids walk 1,100 miles to try to get to safety. And they ultimately end up in a United Nations refugee camp, 100,000 kids. And the United States opens up its borders to people that want to adopt some of these kids. And so the story follows a few kids that go from that refugee camp to the United States. And you realize how, why a lot of the world doesn't like us. When you see the Sudanese kids juxtaposed to Reese Witherspoon, and which is us, it's a real eye-opener. So um, I, you, I definitely recommend it. All right. Well, I'm definitely going to have to put that at the top of my list because those are the kinds of movies that I really gravitate towards, where it's just all about overcoming adversity and doing things that nobody thinks you can do. Like um, there was a, another instance going back to my job and trying to find you know this, this synergy between these two ideas. Somebody had come in and said, listen, we have just an impossible task. The studio wants X, Y, and Z. You have to do it in this amount of time. We know that you're not going to be able to do it, but just kind of placate them. And let's say we tried. And I said to them, wait, did somebody just say that I can't do something? Like, yeah, it'll never happen. I'm like, all right, give me three hours. It's going to be done. As soon as somebody says I can't do something, that's when the light turns on. And that's when, you know, I just hit a flow state. I mean, a lot of that is just the way that I was born. I mean, my parents have told me a story about when I was in Montessori school at two years old, they had a parent-teacher conference. And somebody said, um, we think there's something wrong with your son because he's incredibly competitive and he's very, very intense and he's having trouble making friends. And I just, I look at that and I'm like, well, it all kind of makes sense because, you know, environment has a lot to do with it, but some of it is just the way that I'm wired and I was built. You know, I'm just intense. Like everybody that I've ever met, I always end up hearing, man, you're just really intense. And I'm like, yep, I really don't see any other way to live life. Like That's just the way that I do it. You know, I think Branson should build an aircraft that takes everybody that's non-productive and puts them on another planet. So I agree with you. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I, I I don't know if I completely agree with that, but I certainly understand where you're coming from. So. But going back to what you were saying about the Sudanese children and, you know, telling the woman like, hey, I can you know, I can run up this mountain because I still have my legs and I still have my arms. That's something that I wanted to touch on as well. And this may sound like a shameless plug and maybe it even is, but I wanted to talk a little bit about my documentary film, Go Far, because I have always told people that uh, Christopher Rush is the ultimate Spartan. And you look at him and have you had a chance to see the trailer? I love it. Yeah, great. Okay. So then you, you know, the, the basics behind where I'm coming from, but this is, didn't know you edited it. It's the trailer is awesome. Well, I actually, I didn't edit the trailer. I produced and directed the film. Um, One thing that I hear in all the the podcasts that you're doing, and I'm definitely going to plug the podcast later, but I love that you're asking everybody, how long did you do what you're doing before you actually got anything out of it? Meaning you started making profit or whatever it was. I'm on year seven and a half. 
And I still haven't crossed that threshold. So that explains how dedicated I am to this mission because you want to talk about the cookie test. I've had so many cookies thrown in front of me to just be like, oh yeah, I kind of succeeded and you know, now I've, I've done it and people are congratulating me and I can move on. But I'm not, I haven't achieved my goal yet. I haven't achieved what I set out to do with the film. So I just keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. And I think in the next six to 12 months, the cookie's finally going to come. But, you know, I'm, I'm seven and a half years in right now. And I know that you can relate to that. There's very few people that can relate to that. And I was going to sound like we're really on the same wavelength, but I was thinking about it this morning. Like, it's very hard to talk to a employee, especially an employee that's not in a flow state, right? That's not eating well and, and super healthier, where they can understand that. We've had so many instances in building businesses for 30 years, and I'm sure you went through it with the movie you just described, we don't have funding. I've never had like excess funding to hire people at proper rates, right? You're always trying to make it work. And invariably, many of the people that are working for you are upset. They want more. Like even when people are paid well, they want more in general. We all want more, right? Mm -hmm. And and, um, I don't think people really understand what we not only eat last, we may not eat at all. (laughs) Yeah, been there. Right? Seven and a half years. That's impressive. Like you said, I can totally relate to the idea of hiring people where my philosophy is that I will always give people something, right? I don't, I have very little, the way that I made this film over seven years was basically $25 at a time going online, going on Twitter, going on Facebook, emailing friends and family and saying, I'm making this film. I don't even know how much it's going to take to do it. But right now, just for the next month, I'm going to need $5,000. And that's going to help me travel and shoot interviews or do whatever the task was at hand. And I just did it in these tiny, tiny baby steps, knowing what the ultimate mission was. And I'm still doing that to this day. I'm still trying to raise funds and I'm still trying to get the film out there and get people to, to find it and raise money to build a curriculum. And there's so many different things that I want to do with it. But at the end of the day, it's all about what do I need to do when I wake up this morning and what needs to be achieved? by the time I go to bed tonight. And that's the same thing that you're saying when you're running these marathons is you're you're not saying, well, geez, I have to run 135 miles today. It's, well, I just got to get to that tree over there or I just got to get over the hill and I got to make it another half mile. And it's all about that frame of reference that kind of keeps you going and doesn't overwhelm you. I agree. You got to just get to the next tree. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's really what it's all about is for me, it's like, well, you know, this morning I just have to get through this podcast and then I have to get myself to work and I have to make it through the day and that's it. Because if I look at what I actually have to do over the course of the next month, it'll just crush me. That's another lesson for people, by the way, is um, how many people have you come across? I know I've come across an unbelievable number that kind of gets stuck because they don't, They don't want to go down any particular road until they find the right one. And my life has been, I'm just going to start moving forward. And that'll get me on some road in some direction and until I find something else. And and it just works, right? Because otherwise you're stuck and you're not doing anything. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's actually the very first step of the fitness and post program is that you have to set a goal and have a destination. Um, Like I was just uh, in Florida this weekend doing a speech at a conference and I had said to them, I'm like, listen, when you get in your car, you don't just start driving in circles. What you do is you put a destination into your GPS or your navigation system and it tells you where to go. So you have that ultimate destination. But if you use the Waze app, you may have 15 different directions that you end up going and you had no clue that that's the way that you were going to get to your destination. But it just kind of made sense when you got there. So you know where you're going. If you picture it and you believe where you're going, You just have to be confident you're going to get there, even though the route that you take and the roads that you take and the directions and the number of miles, all of that's going to change and you just have to be okay with it. But if you know what the destination is and you put it out into the world, like you say, you know, you're just going to get there. It's just a question of how. Correct. You know, so the the other reason that I brought up Christopher Rush and Go Far is because I want people to understand specifically about the Spartan race, that it's not just meatheads and professional athletes and these crazy CrossFitters. Like I would say the vast majority, and I'm sure you know the demographics way better than I do, but I've been to a lot of these races and I see the people that are in them. Those guys are kind of the minority. Like it's, it's real people that are just saying, I need to get off the couch and do something with my life. And there are handicapped people and disabled people that are missing limbs and that really quote unquote, have no business being out on the field. So talk to me, not about the, the elite heat. Talk to me about the vast majority of the people that come to you and say, this is my first Spartan race and I'm doing it for X, Y, and Z. Cause I really want people to understand that this is approachable to anybody. I would say we're 95% couch potato. 
I mean, I had a 696 pound guy come out and do a Spartan race. It took him seven hours where everybody else finished in an hour and change. But um, yeah, it's, it's people that really want to just change their life. It's a little more exciting than a marathon or a 10K or a bike ride. It's something visceral happens when they see the videos and the pictures and they get roped in and then they do become healthy. And so you do start to see those fit looking people, but they are the minority. The bulk of them, as you say, are unhealthy on their way, hopefully to being healthy. So definitely, if you're listening to this, don't be afraid. Don't think that you're going to, you know, the pictures you see might be very fit looking people because they are the elite heat, but they're, they're 5%, if not less of a 10,000 person field in any particular race. Well, and not only that, but when you're talking about the elite heat and you're looking at guys like Ben Greenfield and Hunter McIntyre and Isaiah Vidal, like all these big names in obstacle course racing, you're never even going to see those guys. Like I never see those guys out on the course unless I'm seeking them out. I'm running around people that look like they belong in the same place that I do, which is not at an obstacle course race, you know, but you just see this look in people's eyes and you see the struggle. And I just, I wish that there were some way that you could like x-ray their, their brain or see like a brain scan of them doing it. Cause you can just see the look in people's faces as their brains get rewired. Um, and your, your tagline is you'll know at the finish line. So what is it that people know at the finish line? Cause I'm sure you just hear this over and over and over and over at every single race. Yeah. It's hard to describe until you've been there. You know, when you did the first one, it's an amazing feeling of accomplishment. There's something that happened along the way in that race or the training to the race or a combination of both where you were broken. You could not take another step. You were done. You just wanted to quit. And somehow you pushed forward and you made it to the finish line. And that reward is incredible. All the endorphins get released into the brain. You'll never do it again. And then five minutes later, you find yourself in this situation where you're like, I got to do another one of these. And it's completely contrary to what you were saying to yourself 45 minutes earlier, somewhere out there on the course. It's an amazing thing that occurs. You know, there's this term future memory, and that's where the brain arguably releases some endorphins again to give you a taste at the next starting line of what you're going to feel at the finish line. And so that success of getting across the finish line and feeling those things actually breeds more success. And it's not just at a race, it's at the next challenging editing session or business development of making a seven and a half year long uh, documentary, right? Yeah, exactly. It's it's the same thing where the finish line is one thing for the obstacle course race. But when it comes to running a business or making a film, like there really kind of is no finish line unless you decide that you're done. So it really is all about, you even get that feeling with the individual obstacles, right? The one that I remember being really intimidated by when I first started was the monkey bars. I actually started doing the the Tough Mudder first. I hadn't even heard of the Spartan race. And it was just kind of one of those on a whim things where my sister had done a Tough Mudder and said, oh, you should try this thing. It's really, really fun. And that was my first introduction to obstacle course racing. And I had the same experience where as I was doing it, I was like, what is this? This is nuts. Like these people are crazy. And then you get done with it and you're tired and you're sore and you're scraped up. And it's like, oh my God, are you kidding me? I'm never doing one of those again. And then you wake up the next morning and you go online and you say, When's, where's the next one that I can register for? I just want to register, right? And for me, the, the thing that was really intimidating was the monkey bars because I had spent years being sedentary and I have a background in martial arts and yoga and meditation and weightlifting. So I had all the building blocks. They had just all been covered in fat and laziness for several years. Well, not really laziness, just being dedicated to my industry, which promotes being sedentary and having no activity. But it wasn't until I got to the Spartan race that I really started to get it because it's designed very differently. And the obstacles are designed not to be fun, not to say, oh, I want to run around in the mud in a gorilla suit and a pink tutu. It's more, I feel like I am a professional athlete for two hours or three hours or five hours. And you do the individual obstacles and you get that same endorphin rush where you look at the monkey bars and you say, oh my God, I don't know if I can make it through these. And if I'm not going to make it through, I'm going to have to do that stinking 30 burpee penalty, which I'm sure everybody loves you for. But then you make it through and you just feel bulletproof. You literally feel absolutely bulletproof. And you just, it's this really primal experience that you have. And that's really addicting. That's, um, that's a great word. 
Yeah, I, I agree. You, you come across the finish line, you feel bulletproof. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, like I, I remember um, there was one obstacle that I still like have not recovered from because I uh, I hurt my knee when I did it. This was at the the Malibu Sprint in uh, in December. And it really wasn't even that hard of an obstacle. It was just kind of one of those annoying ones. It's uh, everything is in the the mountains and it's all trails. So it's not like these big running pathways like a marathon. But you guys had taken bungee cords and strung them across trees. And it was kind of like running through a spider web, right? And everybody's trying to go slow. Like, do I step over? Do I crawl under? And there was maybe, I don't know, 12 to 18 inches of clearance between the bottom bungee cords in the ground and the ground was rough and there were rocks. And I just said, screw this. I am not playing this game and I'm not going to sit here and lollygag my way through it. So I just rolled. I literally just rolled as fast as I could down the hill under the bungee cords, didn't touch one of them. I did it in like 15 seconds. And the guy that was with me, it took him over a minute or two minutes because he was getting tangled up and you just jump up and you literally, you just feel like Tarzan and you're sitting there pounding your chest. It's just so it's such a, like you said, it's a release, right? It's just such a way to kind of get that energy out of your system and realize that this is what the human body was kind of designed to do. I don't think kind of, <laughs> I think, I think it was designed to do this and I think we lose it, right? I think kids have it instinctually, naturally, and then we lose it over the years. Yeah. And that's kind of something that I wanted to segue into next is something that I know has come up in the past and other podcasts I've listened to, and I'm sure you deal with that on a daily basis is this perception of safety or not safety, right? Whether or not the obstacle course racing world is safe and, oh my God, you're forcing people to crawl under barbed wire and, you know, dunk your head under cold water and, you know, all about safety and somebody could get hurt. But talk to me a little bit about the safety of that versus the safety of not doing something and being sedentary. Because I know you talk about that a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I have this battle at home. I had the battle last night. We, you know, our children work out twice a day and, um, People think that I'm extremely intense and is it safe? And my response to my mother-in-law and my wife last night was, is it healthy, right? Sit and play video games and watch TV. Think about when we were young before video games, we, we spent all day, any moment we had free outside playing football, skitching behind cars in the snow. I mean, we were crazy. So I can't imagine working out and stretching for a couple hours a day is not safe. As far as the race goes, there are injuries. Most of those injuries occur, they're sprained ankles and sprained wrists and things because people are inactive. And so this is jumping off the couch, right? Onto the monkey bars. And I think if people spent a little more time doing some bear crawls and some burpees and some pull-ups and some things and some yoga, right? Get flexible. They probably become somewhat injury-proof. Now, on a percentage basis, there's not that many injuries. Kind of like when an airplane goes down, everybody gets worried about air travel. But when you look at the numbers, it's it's like getting struck by lightning. There's very few people on a percentage basis that get injured at these races. However, that there because there's ten thousand people, there could be a few hundred that sprain ankles or or wrists, and that and that does scare up some individuals. But I don't know. I think I think the risk is greater, like you say, of not getting out there and doing something and um, and finding yourself becoming more and more lethargic until you're eventually, uh, in an extreme example, laying on a hospital bed. Yeah, and you're talking about a few hundred people that are getting sprained ankles or you know, maybe even breaking a limb or whatnot. But you kind of put that against the number of people that are dying from heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. And to me, it's kind of like a no-brainer to compare the two. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you 
to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off. It's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core 360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Here's a great story that I can only laugh about because my dad would laugh about it if he was alive. I, my mom, obviously, as I described earlier, got us into health food and um, really put pressure on my sister and I. My dad wouldn't buy into it. My dad was a workaholic that just ate junk. We grew up in an Italian household, so it was just bread, pizza, pasta, donuts, just garbage. And when I was out of the house and running my own business or even up in Vermont, when I visited him, I'd say, Dad, you got to eat healthier. This food's going to kill you. He had diabetes. He just, he was thin, but he just ate garbage. And for 20 years, they said, the food's going to kill you. The food's going to kill you. He was in a hospital a year ago. He was being released from the hospital, standard stuff because of his diabetes and his heart condition and such from all the junk food. And he was eating a roast beef sandwich in the hospital bed on his way out. And he choked on the roast beef sandwich and he died. You don't want to laugh about death, but it's funny. And he would laugh if he was alive that I said the food was going to kill him and it killed him. I'd rather the barbed wire would have killed him, right? And I'm sure he would have rathered that. So like, like you say, this is a good danger, right? Well, and it's, it's a protected danger too, because it's not like you're throwing people out into the woods and saying survive for 48 hours. Oh, wait, you actually do that too. <laughs> <laughs> That's the death race. That's a totally different level of, uh, of endurance and that kind of thing. But when it comes to the Spartan race, like, yeah, it's hard, but I'm sure even you would admit that it's, and I've heard you say this before, that it's really way, way easier than kind of the vision that you had in your mind. Oh, it's much, it's much easier. Hey, listen, here's the amazing thing. Like, um, not to take anything away from it, but if you're going to do an hour workout at 50 minutes, you start to get tired. If you're going to do a five hour workout, four hours and a half, you know, you're going to get tired. So, so even though it's not a hundred mile run, it's hard work doing a Spartan race, but it's not going to kill you. It's not going to kill you. If you want to be killed, get out there and do something for multi days where it's self-supported and you have no food, you'll really feel what it's like to be hungry, tired, cold, and you'll stop complaining. Well, not only that, but the next day at work, when you get that phone call from that asshole customer, you're like, whatever, dude, seriously, like, <laughs> come on. You know, and at the end of the day, at least for my audience, that's really what I'm trying to impart on them because it, it is a high stress environment and there are crazy deadlines and the environments that we work in are not conducive to health, which is exactly what I'm trying to change. And I'm trying to teach the people in my industry and show them by example that you can actually be healthy and be active and still live in front of a computer and do what we do all day long. And they're finally starting to see that it can be done. One thing that I'll get a lot from people that don't know me as an editor, if I'm doing a, a fitness presentation, so say, yeah, but you don't, you don't really understand this industry. Like, you don't know how hard it is for us to, to do this stuff. I'm like, well, the funny thing is that I've actually been doing this for 15 years and I'm doing it for 60 hours a week right now. And then they just kind of shut up and they, they just kind of look at you you're like, oh, right. And it's that thing that clicks in their head where they realize maybe I can do this and I need to make a change, right? Yeah. What I want to talk about now is your book. And I know that we've talked about some of the stuff that's in it, but you did a, an interview recently with a guy named Stephen Pressfield who uh, wrote The Warrior Ethos. And he said, this is a great quote that I loved. He said, you don't choose a book. The book chooses you. So explain how that kind of applies to your journey with writing your book. Because I know it wasn't just like, oh, well, I have this obstacle course race and now I need to write a book to market the obstacle course race. I know that the journey was much longer for you. Yeah. I mean, I think it's everything we touched uh, today so far. I think I'm just fascinated with this idea that all I had to do was clean the shed for these organized crime guys to make a difference and all of a sudden get more customers. And it, for 35 years, it stuck in my head that you don't have to do much more to stand out, whether it's editing or whatever your place in life is. And 
how do I motivate people and lay out a couple of these concepts so that everybody could be inspired and clean the shed and do a couple of extra things in life to get ahead, right? You have hired, I have hired lots and lots of people. I recently hired an Olympian, and this will tie into the book. I recently hired an Olympian to come in and train the kids. He was an Olympic wrestler. And I'm pretty enamored with wrestling. I mean, it's a tough sport. Those kids, people work very, very hard on the mats, right? The wrestlers. This guy was here in Pittsfield, Vermont, and it's pretty cold and it's snowy for three days. And he told me, I don't know, it's pretty cold. I got to walk a quarter mile from the house I'm staying into your house. He only had to work a couple hours a day to train the kids. He's complaining two days into it that it's too cold. I said, Brendan, you were in the Olympics. His response was, yeah, but that's a summer sport. And it's an indoor, you know, I do everything indoors. I'm not, and that frustrates the hell out of me because I was making an assumption, as anybody would, that if you've made it to the Olympics and you were on a wrestling mat for 20 years, you could handle anything. And clearly I was wrong. So the book for me was to say, guys, it's great that you're good at whatever you're good at, but it's, you got to be more than that, right? You got to take the extra step. You can't complain. You got to have the proper frame of reference. And so I just wanted to get all these concepts down on paper so that other people could take advantage of them. That makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And for me, this thing was an absolute page turner. And I remember when you had first announced, I don't know if it was on the website or an email newsletter. I don't remember how I'd heard about it. Whatever I was doing, I just stopped doing it. I went, I went on to Amazon and I hit the pre-order button. And then every other day it was, all right, was well, the book here yet? Is the book here yet? Is the book here yet? And I knocked it out in like two days. And I'm not really a reader. I don't really have a lot of time to read. I read mostly just to learn information, like read nonfiction to learn more about diet or fitness or productivity, whatever it is, just to try and get better at all the things that I'm doing. But this to me was just like, it's like, here's the handbook. If you want to learn how to overcome adversity, like this is kind of the place where you start. And I could see that it wasn't just, I'm going to throw something together that's advertisement for the race. Like this is a manifesto for everything that I believed and thought of for the last 15 or 20 years. That's great. I appreciate it. I didn't know if anybody read it. Now I know somebody did. Well, yes, I absolutely read it cover to cover and I've been through it a couple of times. And uh, I've also basically just completely devoured your podcast, which is the next thing that I want to talk about. I want to make sure to plug your podcast. And I'm not reaching probably a 20th of the, the listeners that you already have on your show, but I'm doing what I can. But talk about your mission for what this podcast is about, because it's not just another ancillary thing to help market your your race business, this is about something much larger. So what is the actual mission of your podcast and how you're going about it? I just, I, it's that same thing we're talking about. I want to know, are my theories correct? Why is somebody successful? What, what are they, how do they take the extra step? How do they stay motivated? What, you know, what can we learn from them? So, you know, from a Richard Branson to the guy who's shopping Laden to, to a guy I haven't released yet, who, who hands down is my best interview ever. And it may, it may, be, it may turn out to be the best thing of your life. This guy I interviewed, I got to tell you this story. He's from Lebanon and uh, he's a billionaire. And he's out in LA. I didn't know anything about him. It was just, I needed to fill some time. And he's talking with an accent. And so I say, you know, where are you from? Israel. And he said, no, Lebanon. He goes into this story. This will explain the whole podcast. In the 1960s, his dad was very wealthy in Lebanon and they were building all kinds of buildings. They had a construction company. His dad dies. He's nine years old. His uncle takes over. His uncle starts screaming at him that he shouldn't be carrying books. He should be carrying bricks. Books make you soft. But the kid was just loved to read. And this is the guy I'm interviewing years, years earlier. And he's reading books like crazy. By the time he's tw early 20s, he's running the company. He's got 1,700 people working for him in Lebanon doing construction. So you and I might think we were successful in what we've done. This is pretty impressive, right? In Lebanon in the 60s or 70s, running 1,700 men at 20-something years old. He gets kidnapped by the Syrians who are starting to make their way into Lebanon. Things are getting shaky over there. They hang him upside down. They beat him for 96 hours. He's bleeding. He's near death. He hasn't eaten. And um, one of the guys that works for him negotiates his escape. They put him on a plane to Geneva with the vow that he's never going to come back and they could have all his property, his business, everything. He collapses on the plane. He's put into a hospital in Geneva and he ends up sitting next to someone related to the Shah of Iran. Becomes friendly with this person. I don't know if it's the Shah's wife, who it is. 
they invite him to Iran. They say, that's ridiculous. We invite you. We, we would welcome your, you know, what you can do. Before long, six, seven years, he's got 900 people working for him in Iran. He's doing all kinds of construction, building hotels, uh, lake palaces. And um, his housekeeper calls him one day. Must be late 70s now. Says, um, don't come home. They've uh, kidnapped all your friends. They've, they've ransacked the house. He hangs up the phone uh, later to hear on TV or in the news that they've shot about 20 of his close friends in Iran. Out in the street, killed them. He gets a burqa, you know, the, the, the outfit the women wear, and in 14 days on horseback, escapes Iran, gets on a plane with any remaining money he has, flies to LA, pretty much broke, never to go back to the Middle East, never. Never to see his family and ends up becoming um, a billionaire, ends up buying real estate in, in LA and, and builds himself up. But, but the amazing thing about the story is he's extremely forgiving. He uh, tries to help people every single day. And um, we all talk about picking ourselves up, right? Maybe we got scratched in the barbed wire, but we continued forward anyway. We got through 30 burpees. Pretty unbelievable that this guy was able to pick himself up twice going through that. And that's what the podcast is about, right? How do you move forward when you've dealt with that kind of adversity? Well, and what I love about the podcast is two things. Number one, you very clearly have set out an absolutely insane goal, and you've made it very clear to everybody listening. You said, I'm going to do 500 of these, and I'm going to figure this out. It's not I'm going to do a few, and I'm going to find this person and that person. I'm going to do 500 podcasts, and I'm going to figure this out. And for anybody that does not know the production process behind a podcast, they're a pain in the ass. Like These things are not easy, and they're not cheap. So to just set out to do 500 of them, like that's a lofty goal. Well, you only say that if you don't know how difficult they are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sure that if you look back on it now, you're like, wait, it takes how much work to do a podcast? Like, come on, you know? So, and you're doing video podcasts too. So that makes it even harder. I don't need a video camera. I don't need lights. All I need is a microphone and Skype. And we're doing them on location. Yeah, you're doing them on location. And that was the other thing that amazed me because like, I'm not in Vermont right now interviewing you. I'm sitting in my office, right? I'm at home. And you're on set, you know, going to all these places all over the world doing these interviews. And like, that's most people say that's crazy, right? But I've only, I think you've only released maybe 14 or 15 of them and I've listened to all of them and I can already see the similarities and you're hearing the same things from people that have totally different stories and things just start to click and you're like, I get it, you know? And for somebody like me, it's validating all the things that I'm doing when I'm looking at the hours that I'm putting in and the choices that I'm making and, you know, the cookies that I'm turning down because man, have I turned down a lot of good looking cookies in the last 10 years. But when you know where you want to get, it makes it easier to do that. But now I know that there are other people out there that are wired the same way. And I remember it was like a, a week or two ago, I was listening to, and this is so apropos, literally, it was like it was written this way. But I was listening to the one that you did with Angela Duckworth about building grit. And for those that haven't listened, she's somebody that literally has made her life's work understanding grit and determination and how people either create it or are just built that way and what that means about them as a person. And it was just on my rotation and like I, you know, I have a, a playlist on my phone and I had just done like a 30 or 45 minute high intensity workout doing kettlebells and jump ropes and getting my heart rate up high. And I always try to take a walk outside afterwards just to kind of wind down. Cause they always say that you're not supposed to do high intensity work and then sit on the couch. Cause it can be, it's really bad for your heart to actually have to go through that and not wind down. So I'll take a 15 or 20 minute walk. And it was by Los Angeles standards, it was cold. By my standards, I grew up in Northern Wisconsin, so it wasn't cold at all, but it was probably 50. And it was pouring rain, like pouring rain, which never happens in LA. And I was wearing a tank top and shorts. And I was just walking through this cold rain at, you know, 11 o'clock at night, listening to this podcast about grit, you know, and it was just awesome and just validated that what I, what I was doing wasn't actually nuts. Cause I'm sure people driving by were like, why is there a guy in a tank top and shorts walking when it's 50 degrees and it's raining? That's a great visual. It, it was, it was like 11 or 12 o'clock at night. Cause that's the only time that I had to exercise and it's not the optimal time based on all the science that says what time of day you should. Well, you know what? I can't exercise any other time. But it was just so cool to like listen to this story about how grit is built. And I'm sitting there freezing my ass off, walking through the pouring rain with like the rain dripping off my eyebrows. And, you know, I literally felt like I was in like the, the Rocky Four montage. You know? Love it. So it was really cool. Before we go, I want to make sure that everybody knows exactly 
where to go if they want to read the book, if they want to listen to your podcast, if they want to sign up for a race. So if we've inspired somebody to decide that it is time to get up off the couch or get out from behind the desk and do something, tell them all the different ways that they can find you. Yeah. So they can go to Spartan.com, which is easiest and, and uh, poke around the website and find the races all over the world. Spartan Up the book is the book. You can go to SpartanUpPodcast.com and go right to the video podcast or or on iTunes also, but I'm not too savvy with all that stuff. So so that having been said, I'm, uh, I'm going to let you go and I'll let you go about your your work. And like you said, your your job is to wake up the world and save humanity. And you, you're going to have to be able to, to go back to being able to doing that. So one burpee at a time. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you've subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even gonna send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.